You're listening to Radio Primavera Sound, proudly presented by Cupra. Welcome to the Weekly Review, the radio show where the adult men with adult responsibilities keep their eyes on pop culture to maintain some connection with their youthful past, free of responsibilities and plenty of time to devote to worshipping mans. To help us navigate the minefields of the internet, we have the beacon of guiding light that is Wise Mar. No, she's not a German brand of white seawater. She's the lady of modern wisdom, Mar Viverdu. Today, we talk about Wednesday's triumphant album, Ratso God, and also ex-Daft Punk Thomas Bangalter's symphonic new solo album, Mythologies. But first, I'm going to tell you all about my evening with Quentin Tarantino. Mmm, spicy. Quentin Tarantino came to Barcelona last Sunday to promote his new book, Cinema Speculation. But where most writers or people who are promoting books come and do a promotional tour through radios and they might do a thing at a found- an art f- institution or a foundation, Quentin actually sold tickets uh, for this as a, as a spectacle, as a, as a, as a show. And I have to say, they were obscenely priced. <laughs> I won't say what I paid for them, but, you know, it was a moment say that... It. Say I, it. I, it was, you know, I could have gone to one of my favorite restaurants and invited a friend for a lavish lunch for that price. But I have to say, I did leave feeling very elated. I didn't feel robbed. Okay. And this was just a man on stage being interviewed by esteemed film critic Jordi Costa, who everyone loves, including myself. Shout out to Jordi. Uh, and, uh, you know, he, he, he interviewed him about his book, a book which is called Cinema Speculation. Uh, I haven't read it yet. Obviously, I'm dying to get a cat because now I don't order books online. I try and buy them from a bookstore. I wish. No, no, no. This was a this was a proper like cash in. Ben, ben just asked, didn't we get a free copy of the book with the with with the price of the ticket? No, and you had to pay more than the actual book sale or something like that oh a bit more yeah the, yeah, the book i think is 25 euros or yeah 30. but you didn't even get a special price no no did he no. sign your book no i mean some people waited for him at the in the back entrance of the teatro uh the Coliseum, the Coliseum Theater, uh, and I saw images from on the newspaper where they actually, you know, he, you see him uh, coming out of the van and and signing whatever books he could sign in that space of in that short distance. Uh, there was furor, like there was like uh, the queue, like even though the seats were numbered, there was a queue to get in, like a long queue, like like in the olden days when people would queue up. Well, st- people still queue up for big theater plays and things, and but the cinema, you don't see those kind of queues. Maybe at the phenomena. Uh, so it was nice to see, like, oh, excitement on Easter Sunday, a day when oh. most people are, yeah, Easter Sunday. Like most people were, I had a big family lunch and I was like, oh, I got to go to the theater now. I don't really, I'm not in the mood. But once I got there and saw the hype, it's like, yeah, what a nice thing um, to be a part of. Obviously, they took our phones. Uh, they took our phones and well, they gave they gave us our phones, but they put them in a pouch with a lock that could only be unlocked with a special magnet. Oh my god! Yeah, so because uh, yeah, and now yeah, I want to know everything that happened inside. It feels like now we, he revealed a huge secret or something. Well, it was very revealing because I thought, okay, he's gonna talk about the book, and and I have to say, Quentin Tarantino is a very good writer. Obviously, screenwriter. No one can argue that. But also as a 
uh, as a fiction writer, and I'm I'm dying to read his 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 theories and his uh, speculations about how about the films that influenced him growing up. Um, the what kind of crowd was there? It was the kind of crowd that the, the our our colleagues in the Forme Semanal are always like uh, making fun of men <laughs> with podcasts. Imagine. Oh my god. Men men with you. podcasts about no, <laughs> men with podcasts about movies. Men with t-shirts that said written and directed I by Quentin Tarantino. Oh my literal god. Although I do have friends who are girls who have t-shirts yeah. saying directed by Woody Allen. I've got I have one friend because she was in in a Woody Allen movie as a stand-in for Oh my god, Scarlett I would, Johansson. then then she has to wear that. Of course, you know, it's still I, a bit problematic, eh? Yeah. Well, this was years ago before everything. Yeah, we can see it's post-ironic or something. Yeah. Um but yeah, there was a brand like an Instagram brand for like baddies, you know, like girls that are very hot that they released like a a t-shirt like a crop top that um, had Um, written and directed by Quentin Tarantino, so I can imagine also if there were girls there. There exactly. were many girls. It was, it was you know, it was all yeah. ages. There was even families, like like like, uh, I wouldn't say four generations, but you could see there was like grandparents with their with their children and their their grandchildren, uh, teenage grandkids. The youngest person? Uh there were people. There, there. I, I don't. Recall seeing teenagers, but I do recall seeing young 20-somethings, including oh. mm. Javi Peralvo from Belle du Jour. Obviously, he's a, f- a film director. So, you know, oh, lots of uh, Nicolas Mendez, who's uh, one of the top directors of Rosalia videos from Can- for Canada. He was there with his wife, um, but he want- he didn't want to stick around for the second part. He f- he said he felt a little bit... It's like, I'm like, well... He left. He left half... Because oh there was an God. intermission. Yeah, he's, you know, he's he's... He- <laughs> Nico, um, but uh, uh, that's kind of iconic. Like, it's like yeah, that's it for I, me. I, Bye. Yeah. And, and he missed the best part because there was an intermission, uh, and, and a long intermission. Like, it gave you time to have a cerveza. Like Quentin asked us to do. It's like have a cerveza. It, it was funny to hear him speak Spanish because he talked about uh, Jordi asked him about his favorite Spanish movies, and obviously he mentioned films like La Residencia and he kept saying La Residencia La Residencia <laughs> or um, uh, Vicente Aranda he said uh, Vicente Aranda I don't know uh, he, he was very funny with some of his pronunciations but um, but but obviously he he's one of the reasons people are so fascinated by Quentin Tarantino is almost as much as him as a film geek as a such an accomplished film director and screenwriter Uh, like his knowledge of movies is is just like very it's it's thrilling to listen to him, which was kind of a a bit of a letdown that the but I guess he wanted to contextualize or him and Jordi wanted to contextualize the the beginning of the chat by he started Quentin explaining something that any film enthusiast anyone who 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 loves films loves that period of 70s cinema in Hollywood which is one of the most interesting periods when. Some uh, such a commercial industry started taking risks with. Here I am, Quentin explaining with uh, no. young directors who were edgy. You had Sam Peckinpah, who was extra, ex- incredibly violent in movies like The Wild Bunch. So this was something that wasn't seen in Hollywood. Hollywood at that time, uh, end of the sixties. This was written very well. This was very well written about in a book called Easy Riders: Raging Bulls by Peter Siskind. One of the best books on 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 seventies Hollywood ever written. Uh, it's super entertaining. It tells you about everyone who was making moves and the kind of movies. And Quentin went on to just sort of contextualize, like you, know, you had Sam Peckinpah, you had Robert Altman, 
Uh, and then you had the studio brats like Steven Spielberg, Francis Ford Coppola, Martin Scorsese, who were like came from film school and they were nerds and they'd go to parties, but they wouldn't like talk to girls. They'd be talking about movies all the time and uh, blah, 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 blah. No. So Quentin goes on. He wanted to contextualize like his that's when he was a child. Like these were the movies that were starting to happen and he was very small. What was incredible was the fact that he's his mother. He spoke. Even though you thought it's like, okay, he's going to talk about the book and the subject matter in the book, but really he talked about his life, his his childhood. And it was, and it's something that I guess he's talked about in interviews and in podcasts and stuff, but I wasn't as aware of it. His mother let him watch Deliverance when he was like nine years old. First of all, what kind of cinema allows a nine-year-old boy to go in to watch a movie with one of the most disturbing scenes that I've ever seen where a man gets raped by another man? And like it's quite graphic in a sense, like it's 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 very gritty, and it's like <laughs> I only rewatched it two years ago, and it was like my heart was racing from like wow, this scene is like really really uncomfortable to watch. It's like disturbing. <laughs> and it's like a nine year old, and he went on to explain that. Because it was like he didn't understand as a nine-year-old what exactly was happening, what sodomy was or anything. But he understood that that man was being humiliated, which is the gist of the scene, right? So, that, so he, you know, he talked about his sensibility of like how you can show a child a film and it's, it's not going it, to, it doesn't necessarily have to mess them up, no? So he, he, he made a, an interesting point and then he said like, you know the film that really, the one film that really did disturb Quentin Tarantino? Bambi. Oh and my it, God. And it is true. I remember seeing Bambi and it's like, huh, what? The mother? Yeah. And, and the forest fire and all these kind of horrible things that happen to these cute animals that are cute as hell. The Disney animals with those beautiful Disney eyes that they always draw on, on, on their cartoons. And it's like, they don't prepare you for that movie because the trailer is like Bambi playing with like his friends, the rabbit and 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 all the and the skunk and stuff. And, and you think you're going to see this cute fantasy of animals in the forest. And it is like the hardest life lesson. Shout out to Disney screenwriters who like were teaching children incredible... About grief and stuff. Grief, yeah. yeah. Pinocchio. Pinocchio is disturbing. And... and... Lion King, when the father dies, that <laughs> it's like there's always there's always parents who die because that's what happens in life. But Pinocchio has like child labor, child slavery, uh, the so, death of the hero. You know, it's like oh, damn, you know, it's like I, I again, I recently rewatched Pinocchio, and it's like I'm not gonna show my daughter Pinocchio yeah. until she's a teenager at least. <laughs> oh my god, it's it's gonna she's gonna be like a bubble kid, like she's not gonna know anything. I know, <laughs> and I don't want her to be a bubble kid. Ben, what's the hardest thing that your kids watched? being really maybe you don't even know like because unexpected. I watched movies without telling my mother so well I, I was going to sort of say in a slight diversion I, I spent the weekend with my nephew with my two nephews uh, two Catalan nephews who are um, 10 and 12 yeah and uh, we were talking a bit about films because like uh, my daughter is like I want to see Stranger Things so I want to see Stranger Things I'm like no you can't see Stranger Things uh, and anyway so I was talking to like the, the well talking to both of them particularly the older one about stuff he'd seen and I was like, yeah, The Shining really scared me as a kid. Like, the Shining, you loser. There's nothing wrong with that. And I was like, what about like Blair Witch Project? It's like, bah, Blair Witch Project doesn't scare me. And I was like, all right, it. It's like, nah, who cares about it? And I literally, like, oh, Saw. Oh, Saw's really stupid. And it's like, oh, literally nothing. 
Nothing mm-hmm. like all those disturbing like because that's not like horror like a, ooh a ghost in the closet. Those are disturbing. You know the the, the, the shining, the, the shining, the <laughs> elevator, all that blood. It's like the twins. The twins are even some of the most scary thing, and they don't actually come out and do boo. You know they're like just there, like come and play with us, and it's like. <laughs> uh, but yeah, children's perception. So that was like an interesting comment on you know like oh he didn't actually say it out loud, but it's like yeah this the whole. Thing in America and in the world of overprotecting people of what they can see, you know, what kind of books, you know, changing role doll books. He never talked about that, but it was obviously on his mind. But I thought the most interesting thing, like where I got my money's worth out of this evening with Tarantino, was how detailed he explained his fascination with black exploitation or black culture, oh. which has always been present in his movies. And and was it like? Problematic? Did he say something that it was like, um, maybe he shouldn't have said that? The only thing that maybe like, someone could like mm, was when he was reading in the, after the intermission, he read the last oh chapter in his God, book, no. and he talked in detail about Floyd, a person who was a part of his life. So Floyd is the most interesting thing, and I was like, someone should make a film about Floyd, and he's like, oh, he already did, and because he said it's like Floyd was. So, okay, hang on. I'm going to tell you all about it. Tarantino explained in detail how his mother, when mm-hmm. she divorced his stepfather, who Tarantino always had very nice things to say about his stepfather. Um, uh, when her, his mother divorced his stepfather, she was uh, she went to share a flat with two other girls, who one happened to be Mexican and the other happened to be black. So there's these, and you know, it, oh, that already sounds like an idea for a sitcom. Mm-hmm. These three single ladies living in LA, they were incredibly attractive, the three of them. And his mother was, date, for three years, dated black athletes. Like, okay. all of a sudden, it was like, she only dated black men who happened to be athletes. Okay. And one of these athlete uh, boyfriends took Quentin to see Uh, a Jim Brown movie. Jim Brown was an ex-American uh, football star turned uh, Hollywood actor, Hollywood legend. And uh, and he was a star in black exploitation movies as well. So this this black boyfriend took Quentin, 10-year-old Quentin, to see a black exploitation movie in a cinema, in a, in a sort of, in a neighborhood in downtown LA where there was, it was just a cinema full of black people. He said, if there were like mm, 500 seats, a uh, thousand seats, Uh, 800 were black men, 50 were black women, and I was the only white face in this cinema. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, and he said that the 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 cheering, you know, all the excitement of all these black people watching Jim Brown kick ass on screen in one of these I, don't, I can't remember what film it was he mentioned, but it was one of those films where he's like knocking down doors and like killing and, and beating up people. You know, he's a hero, he's a badass, and like people were just like wow, wow, you know. And he said he forever he's been. That that defined his his hunger to recreate that experience in cinemas as a director. Like he said, when he saw that as a 10 year old, like the the excitement and and you know, and you can imagine like, you know, black people in a cinema, like, you know, in the 70s, it's the, you know, it's black exploitation was like a historical moment in cinema where black people got their own movies. Like Black heroes, black uh, heroines like um, uh, Pam Greer playing coffee, um, Cleopatra Dr- Jones. You know, for the first time, black people are seeing black representation where they are the heroes. They are they've got the money. They've got the they 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 end up with justice in their on their own ways, right? Um, so Tarantino's exposed to this at a very young age. 
Q Floyd, Floyd, uh, who has his own chapter in the book. Floyd, like Tarantino is about 15 years old. He's starting to get into trouble because his mother's out and about like working and going to parties and stuff. And she's like, damn it, I've got a 15 year old kid who's starting to get into trouble. He's skipping school. He's, he's shoplifting. I need a parental kind of figure to watch out over him. So she, Floyd is a, a boyfriend of one of her friends and she like, and he's a, he's a vagabond. He's like this black hustler, kind of like Ordell Roby and Jackie Brown, as Quentin put it. So the mother's like, you need a place to stay. How about this deal? I let you live in our house rent-free if you keep an eye out on Quentin. Like, you know, just give him a bit of male bonding, give him a bit of a, you know, just a bit of a, you know, you're not going to be his father, but just, you know, he needs a bit of a male presence to sort of talk to and this kind of thing. What a great idea. <laughs> Put this Ordell, I don't know if you've seen Jackie Brown, but Ordell Roby, one of Quentin Tarantino's most beloved characters, interpreted by Samuel L. Jackson. <laughs> you know, he's, the, he's this hustler. Obviously, Tarantino said Floyd wasn't as malicious and lethal and violent as Ordell Roby, but, you know, it's that kind of guy. You know, he's got this like swag and stuff. So Tarantino's amazed by this guy who also happens to be a cinephile. He knows everything about cinema. And Quentin, at 15, was like this arrogant little film nerd. He's like, yeah, but what's your favorite black exploitation movie? What's your favorite Jim Brown? You know, asking him all these, like, trick questions or, you know, like, see how much he knows. And the guy knew everything. So Quentin's, like, in love with this guy. Like, wow. And um, and he talked about... It's, it's such a beautiful homage to this character, you know, who was a vagabond who never got his chance in life and whatever but Quentin said that this guy also wanted to be a screenwriter and he would write scripts at home and Quentin the first scripts that Quentin ever read were Floyd's scripts and he learned how to format scripts like oh this is how you start with a heading and you put your your text in the middle and and, and scene one uh, exterior all this kind of detail right because Floyd knew Floyd had f screenwriter friends so that's how Quentin talks about that's those were the first scripts I I I I, I read. So that's that was the first seed. And Floyd wrote the, one of those scripts he wrote was this epic western because westerns were hugely popular at the time. And this western was about this black orphan kid who gets picked up by a white family and raised by this white family along with their other kids. So he grows up with this white brother. And this boy, this black child is equally loved as much as, you know, there's just no sense of race or anything. And, uh, you know, this kid grows up to be this incredible cowboy who goes out on a revenge spree, right? Throughout this, the script story. And uh, then, and obviously everyone's like, oh, oh, everyone's thinking Django Unchained, right? And Quentin says, said in the theater, he's like, I never used a single idea of Floyd's script when I wrote Django Unchained. But obviously, this epic tale of a black cowboy out for justice was plant, this seed was planted by Floyd. I picked up the, uh, I'm gonna get, I picked up the Oscar for best screenplay for Django Unchained. And I wish I would have thanked Floyd. Oh, he didn't? He didn't oh thank him God. in the in the speech, <laughs> I think. That, I, I guess that's what he alluded to. So, uh, so but, you know, what greater way of thanking him than by finishing this book with this chapter, detailing what a fabulous, uh, what an interesting character Floyd was and what a, what a, what a, what a great mother, motherly decision. Something that's like no parent would probably do, like leave your child 
for hours on end on a couch with this guy who's probably like <laughs> making a living with in, in very uh, interesting ways that might not always be legal <laughs> and and uh, and all of a sudden well you know that that turned out to be like in his movies like you've got Ordell Roby and Jackie Brown you've got Django Untamed you've got him becoming one of the greatest screenwriters of of his generation and uh, it was it was amazing and and it and it and it makes you understand why Tarantino always has elements of black exploitation in all of his movies even in Inglorious Bastards which is a movie set in World War II there's the black character of the 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 screen the the projector the projectionist of the cinema who also happens to be the boyfriend of Shoshana uh you've got Samuel L Jackson narrating so it's always like he, he finds a ways it's like oh you know you don't usually see black people in world wars first of all there were many black soldiers i don't know why any of the bastards were weren't a black soldier but no he 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 makes these choices anyway i've always been okay with you know Quentin gets criticized for his his use of the n word especially in pulp fiction where he plays he plays a character and he's like he he says it he's like do you see a, a sign that says dead n-word storage here to someone and spike lee criticized him heavily it's like you don't get to use that around and samuel jackson came out in quentin's defense at the time saying it's like look uh, it, not only black artists get to use the n-word in music and in their films you know why is that uh, what did he say exactly where is it um black art This is what Samuel L. Jackson said when he was defending Quentin Tarantino while he was promoting Jackie Brown. Black artists think that they are the only ones allowed to use the word. Well, that's bull. Jackie Brown is a wonderful homage to black black exploitation films. This is a good film, and Spike hasn't made one of those in a few years. Damn. Oh my Oof. God! I am, I don't know. <laughs> I feel like black artists and black people should be the only one, but allowed to. I don't think Quentin Tarantino should. But this like, is the thing. I, I understand fiction. I know it's a fiction and I know how it works. And I know it doesn't mean like he's saying it to his colleagues and, and using it like freely and stuff. And, and, and it's just part of a character he wrote. But still, it feels like a little bit of like the food fetish thing. Like mm. maybe he's using it in something that he really wants to see or say and like oh fiction is my alibi like yeah I, but i don't know i don't know i'm not gonna go too deep into this it, topic because i i truly don't know but it's 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 not like what we were talking about that sam levinson and weekend like yeah, they yeah. they actually really do enjoy seeing uh probably allegedly they enjoy watching uh women get uh abused and mm -hmm. and, and mistreated on screen mm -hmm. you know that's like are you like are you are you actually using your job as an excuse to, to fulfill your fantasies fulfill your yeah. fantasies but for I, a child who grew up with black people in his life so closely, I understand why he has no complejo, no uh, reservations about speaking as freely or recreating the speech of how people in Crenshaw, Compton, mm -hmm. or where some of his characters in his movies uh, live or came from, like Ordell Roby in Jackie Brown. Obviously, in Django Unchained, it, that's historical relevance. That's how white people spoke. They used the N-word mm, freely, and that's, you know. And remember, there was this whole thing about uh, Leonardo DiCaprio. Enjoying way too much. No, he didn't want, he <laughs> felt he really uncomfortable oh, okay. having to say some of the things, and, uh, and Jamie Foxx and Sam 
Samuel Jackson took him to a sign. It's like, yeah. Quentin, uh, Leo, you have espabila. To say it. Yeah. You have to say it because this is good for us. Like, yeah. this is history. Yeah. No one else has the guts to uh, portray these things. You have to be that mm-hmm. guy. You get this privilege. Come on, espabila. And, and they, they helped him uh, overcome his, his unease. You know, you're yeah. an, uh, Cause, cause, like, that's such a memorable character, um, uh, Candy, <laughs> Candy, Calvin Candy, in Django Unchained, one of Leo DiCaprio's best roles. Uh, anyway, um, the only bajon. Okay. So I he, was waiting for this. Uh, oh no, no, sorry, sorry. Hang on. No, the only thing that he might have, he could have gotten into trouble for, maybe in the United States, is when he was reading. Um, his chapter on Floyd, and he was like saying some of Floyd's uh, phrases. He put on a bit of a black accent, and he w- and it's like as if yeah, no, that it was. It could have been crazy. It was funny because it was clumsy. Because it's like Tarantino isn't the best actor, even though he's memorable oh, when he God. has acted in his own movies or in, in Robert Rodriguez movies. But it's like he was trying to put on this, you know. But I can imagine he's. It's in his voice, like he's trying to. Sp- bring Floyd back to life and he's like damn uh, he was like he was just saying like some of Floyd's quotes when they'd be watching movies on the couch and it's and it was hilarious like huh ain't nobody gonna believe that Sidney Poitier is gonna be it's some revenge nigga all of a sudden I don't sorry <laughs> the n-word came out um but he didn't say it like that anyway he uh, it was just a little bit like bordering on the cringe thing but I could see that it's like you know he's bringing back this this very dear person in his life back to life by you know uh, it's it's this thing about the accents no and uh, the only little bajon was that he's he did confirm that he is working on a script about a film critic which is something that's been talked about recently that 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 might be his final movie everyone's like oh you know ah that sucked as well he didn't he didn't do question and answers he didn't oh, open the floor for a q and a you paid that much we, we paid that much money. money we didn't get a book signing and we didn't get a q and a and it's like That's how much of a superstar he is. He's like, no, no, it came in. He did the mic drop. The Obama, the he did a mic drop at the end. Thank you, and he left. No, I've got to say that those Q and A's are sometimes awful. Awful, because, yeah. yeah. And and cinephiles are like, this is more like an intervention more than a question. Oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And they want to they want to read their yeah. essay before. Yeah, maybe he knows his fans are horrible, and it's like, no, you're yeah. not gonna talk. Because it wouldn't and, be 10 minutes. It yeah. would be Quentin, one question. What was in the briefcase? What was, this, what was in the briefcase? Or that, you know. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You'd have the occasional... Yeah, it would have It would have sucked. Like, But um, the only thing that was like, oh, uh, well, first of all, n- none of that. And uh, that he confirmed, yes, I am working on a sp- film script about a film critic in the 70s. And everyone was speculating that it was going to be about Pauline Keel, a famous uh, film critic who was a woman. Uh, one of the most influential female film critics of the 70s. And it's like, oh, cool, you know, and he, he's going to do like Jackie Brown, you know, where the, the main character is a woman, a heroine, and well, but a film critic, how are you going to put ultraviolence and uh, a, 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 a storyline in that, no? But he said, no, no, it's not going to be a female critic. It's going to be a male critic. It's inspired by someone that I'm not going to tell you who it is and stuff. And, and it's like, oh, um, wasted opportunity, but... But you know, but it'll still be something interesting in in his hands. Um, but yeah, uh, and that was my evening with Quentin Tarantino. And do you know what? You paid more than a hundred euros a ticket. No, not more than. All right, 100. you paid quite a lot, and we're just giving people the juice for free. Yeah. Well, because because it, it, that's the, how it works. You, no, it's someone, not like he's on a tour. He's not doing more of these. No, but that's what I mean. Like we're 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 like a we're ch- the people's 
heroes. We're all giving. Yes. Yeah. Well, you are because <laughs> we didn't pay. I'm sharing my yes, yeah exactly. yeah exactly. Well, what's the point if I can't? I couldn't even take a photo. To yeah, like, exactly. That's to what like you're supposed for my to social do. Cachet. You go and you tell us what happened. You know, to the people who missed it. Did anyone sneak out their phone? I didn't see anyone. Try. I mean, was it like impossible to? to I tried open? to open it. I couldn't. Oh I mean, if God. I would have used a key or a little, mm. I don't carry pocket knives, but if you used like a little, I think maybe you could. You know, like the the anti robbery alarms. Oh, yeah, on, yeah, you know, yeah. people. Some people know you how could to. Click. If you really if you, wanted if to, you really wanted to, it's like, nah, I'm just gonna like enjoy the moment and stuff. And but what would have happened if you said I don't have a phone? Like when you're going in. They probably would have believed you, and you would have gone in. But yeah, then, if, you but, have... but there were ushers. Like if they would have seen you, maybe yeah. you would have been expelled, and that yeah. would have been mm. horrible, horribly embarrassing. Not embarrassing, just like what? Embarrassing, yeah. Yeah. embarrassing. Uh, quite yeah. embarrassing. Yeah, Quentin, yeah. I love you. Get your phone out of here. <laughs> I love you. I just wanted a piece of this. I'm a filmmaker, like Sofia Coppola's <laughs> child. I make movies with my iPhone and my, from oh, my that, TikTok. That would be iconic. Yeah, yeah. Oh, but, you could have asked him what he thought about that. Damn it! I know, because because Sofia's his ex Bay and. <gasps> What? Yeah, they. The, oh, I, I know do you want to hear my Tarantino story? My yes. my, 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 my my encounter with Tarantino. <laughs> another one? My other one. Just to, just the to, other. Yeah, evening? yeah, absolutely. Yeah, what's the point? I'm not going to write my biography and tell Please. you about this. Um, uh, back when he was promoting Kill Bill Two, he came to Madrid. The best one. He, I like that you <laughs> yes, have only. an opinion on this. Uh, <laughs> A wrong one? <laughs> no, no, no. Uh, uh, he came to promote Kill Bill Two to Madrid. And while I was working at MTV, we got an interview. So, and I was that was like I was so excited that whole weekend. I got to go to the, the press. It was I think it's the first time I went to a press pass to watch a movie in a you know when it's just four journalists in the room. Um, so I, I watched Kill Bill Two, loved it. Not only was he doing the promo tour, David Carradine, who plays Bill, was also going to be uh, was also on uh, on the promotional tour. So I got to interview both of them on one morning. And I went with like one of those Western shirts like Bill wears in the movie that, you know, I went with my look. And Quentin, like when he saw me come in the room, he kind of got, a, he got giddy. It's like, ooh, oh a black God. guy. Cool. Uh, <laughs> so <laughs> he got giddy, you know, when usually like oh, after press junkets and stuff and they're doing it in all the countries, you know, it's like, oh. and he was like giddy. And it's like, ah, so, you know, we asked him questions. I remember it's like, how are we supposed to believe that, you know, Uma Thur this Chinese, this uh, Kung Fu master would teach Uma Thurman's character the five-point uh, palm exploding heart technique. She's Uma Thurman. Wouldn't you believe that a master would teach her? You know, that was his explanation. Um, so hours later, they project Kill Bill 1 and Kill Bill 2 in the cinema. And he was in the audience because he watches his movies. He loves to watch his movies with, his, with an audience, you know, in, in whatever country. Doesn't matter if he's watched it 500 times. This is how much of a film geek he is. And he was with Sofia Coppola. She was in the cinema. Oh. So as the lights come up after we watch this double whammy of an epic revenge tale, another with a heroine, uh, with a female heroine at the center, uh, everyone's clapping. Everyone's like, the full cinema's full. Everyone's like clapping. I'm like way at the back next to the exit uh, on, the, on the aisle seat. And Quentin is like walking with Sofia Coppola by his hand, like waving to this standing ovation. And he sees me and he comes to me <gasps> and he gives me and he shakes my oh hand. Oh my word. And he's like, hey, good to see you. Thank you for coming. I'm, I'm like, and I and felt. And you painted. I almost, and it was like, just my, my like, I was like, peasants. 
All yeah. of you peasants. I'm yeah. the best friend. I am the best friend. I, 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 it was like one of the best moments in my life. Like the only time where positive racism. racism I thought the exact same. It's like I'm so. It's like if I'm usually generally super happy to be black. Like that was like the extra. It's like when you know. <laughs> I was like, um, and 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 yeah, I, I was touched by God. You know, it was like from you know, uh, and I, and thank God I've got a photo of the interview, uh, and I got to interview the great David Carradine. Uh, may he rest in peace. Um, and uh, just to finish, so you your favorite Tarantino movie would be Kill Bill Two? Mm, yeah, probably. It's better than the first one, and this is the hill I will die on. Like it's so obvious, and I don't know why people don't want to see the truth. It's better. The second one's better than the first one, and it's probably one of the best he's ever done. Have you seen all of them? No, the last few, the new ones, no. Uh huh. Because uh, I can't be bothered uh-huh. to be like three hours What? at a theater. We've talked about everything with you, Mar, but we don't know your film tastes. I mean, I know you like Timothy well, Chalamet. Disney. But, oh yeah, yeah Di- Disney musical in Barcelona. That was a big, big one. Disney musical. No, you know that that Disney film where the band comes to Barcelona. You were telling me about. You know, oh, the, the Cheetah Girls too. Yeah, that's Always the, one the second part. <laughs> Is that the oh, one where they go to Ibiza? No, no. they go to Barcelona literally. Yeah, and, it's and, brilliant. Oh and my And they God. like do like their American version of Barcelona, and it's like yeah. What about you, Ben? What would be? Are you are you invested in Tarantino having your favorite one or favorite three? I mean, to be honest with you, I saw his early films um, and haven't seen many of the later ones. Not because I don't want to, just I don't know. It's like, you know you know what it's like. You have children, you have to get a babysitter and your mm. wife doesn't like the same kind of films. And yeah. so um, I was a massive fan of, massive fan of Pulp Fiction, as was yeah. everyone of, of yeah. my age um, yeah. and Reservoir Dogs. I thought Jackie Brown was brilliant. And then after that, I sort of... But I'm not, I'm not. I'm not saying the films got worse. I'm just saying yeah. I didn't see him. I was doing other stuff. I've never seen Kill Bill, for example. Well, sorry. Wow. Okay. Well, good because you have time. You have time. You know those films don't don't age. There's two uh, films essay. though. I can't be asked. Uh, I don't really like sort of martial arts films either. But it's yeah. But it's more. But like, it's, it's Uma Thurman. It's Uma Thurman. Oh, no, okay, like, all right. Yeah, no, I, I like it. That's better than <laughs> my top three, in no specific order. Pulp Fiction, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, no. Jackie Brown. Yeah, Hollywood. What are you, what are you knowing about? What, one, and three, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, everyone agrees it's not a great one. I it's my it's my one of my favorite Tarantino movies, and I, and the three of them take place in Holly in 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 LA, so in Los Angeles or in California. Pulp Fiction, Once Upon a Time. That's what I love. It's like his his the how he how he treats the pulp world, how he treats the those those uh, scenarios of LA. Um, the motels, the backlots, the parkings, the the restaurants, the the characters moving around in those worlds, and uh, I I I was obsessed with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood because it's kind of like you know the, the well I'm, I'm not going to go into why I just yeah those are my three but then I just love all the others as well like I can rewatch Django I can rewatch Bastards. Even Hateful Eight, which is a, a three-hour movie that's almost like a theater show, you know, it's all one location and this kind of stuff. Even that one, the more I watch it, the more I like and I get. And I think that it would be interesting if Tarantino starts directing theater plays like he's oh. hinted that he might do. The shit thing is that a theater play you can only see once, you know, wherever it's being represented. Like even trying to get into a Broadway show as a tourist is like impossible. 
So it's like, that's something we won't be able to enjoy, like his movies, which the entire world can see. Anyway, uh, come on, let's talk about music. Album of the week. Wednesday. Play. Ah, the good old days when a band would be hyped by every musical platform at the same time and uh, audiences would be excited and you get you look on the lineup of Primavera Sound and you see that they're coming to play. Wednesday is every music critic's favorite band right now and I understand why. Ben. Go on, tell us why. Why do you like them so much? Because it, it's like you've got an incredibly charismatic front woman with, with very interesting lyrics with a backing band that sounds as tight as the drive-by truckers or one of those sort of Americana bands that, you know, float the line between Midwestern indie and uh, Southern Americana. It's a very great balance, but there's incredible dynamics. There's an, the second song is eight minutes long. I love that kind of uh, free spirit. What did you like about Wednesdays? Uh, what's well, the name of the album? Rat and the Rat Rat, rat Soul, Soul God. God, which is a great name. I, I like uh, one thing. A lot of people talk about the specific. God, I can't say the specificity mm-hmm. in the lyrics. Like, if you look at the lyrics, are really, really good. Um, and she picks up this incredible detail, like "Bull Believer," the second song. Oh yeah. Um, passed out on a couch at a New Year's party. Sat on the stairs with a never-ending nosebleed. You were playing Mortal Kombat. God made me make me good, but not quite yet. Which is brilliant. And people, a lot of people are going like, I love the fact she knows that it was Mortal Kombat. You know, it wasn't like yeah. a video game. Um, or there's like a really, Quarry's got a beautiful sort of lines. The rain-rotted house on the dead end of the bay tree, old bitter lady, sits candy corner to the aftershock from the quarry. That's lovely, lovely, like really, really good songwriting. Very American though. I think like I've very been, American, yeah. Yeah, unmistakably American. Like it's not like a British band trying to sound American or a Japanese band or a Swedish. It's just like this band could only be from where are they from? Arkansas? No, not uh, Arkansas. Somewhere in the south, I believe. Asheville, North Carolina. That's it, North Carolina. They're from North Carolina. Uh, there's a little bit of Kim Gordon-ness in some of her delivery. Not totally, because you know, uh, Kim Gordon has a timber and a different voice, but the. I don't know, especially on like the the the, the first song. I don't know. I just got a, a a Sonic Youthy kind of vibe, and I always love long progressive indie rock songs like Yola Tengo's Blue Light Swinger or Sonic Youth's Teenage Riot, Mogwai Epics like Mogwai Fear Satan. This is top banana in my book, uh, especially that song Bull Believer. Mm. I like the fact they got a lap steel as well, which is again very very American. Those kind of country music influences, and you they know kind that of instrument that goes. Where they have it on the lap. It's no, very country western. But I'm gonna look it up. Lap steel. Yeah, more lap steels. Which made me wonder, like Americans are going absolutely mad over this album. I wonder if the whole world will, because it is so American. Like it does kind of yeah. I mean, I enjoyed it, I enjoyed it a lot. But I was a bit like, I think I think I'd enjoy it one more if I was American and if that kind of thing like um appealed to me. It's almost like saying can a could a like a Belgian person enjoy flamenco as much as a person from Andalusia? I know what you mean. Like, if you've got it as part of your identity, and you know, everywhere you go, that's the kind of the sound of the scenery. We listen to it as a postcard. Like, oh, this is what I want from an American band because it sounds gothic. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. And and it's like, oh, if I I'm gonna put on my flannel t-shirt and drink my my watered down beer. <laughs> Diet like, beer, yeah. Oh. To to have the cosplay experience of like, yeah, I'm in an I'm in the photo of an Amer of 
of some American Western thing. Uh, they could be touring partners with Big Thief. I well, think they reminded in... me a lot of Big Thief. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Or, inevitably. Uh, um, I, I, I was going to say like they're quite. Um, I really like the way they go a bit shoegaze sometimes, and then they introduce like a bit of pedal steel on top of a shoegaze, yeah. which I wasn't expecting at all. It's like really interesting textures to the song. So it's like really well written songs and really interesting textures with a lot, a lot of kind of nostalgia. You know, I think she's like. 20 in her late 20s basically and I think it's that feeling where you're just starting to get a little bit nostalgic you know what yeah. I mean like yeah. um, kind of looking back without sort of uh, overdoing it's quite world weary you know I found yeah 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 perfect perfect fit for the kind of character that the world needs now no that, that kind of world weariness and someone who channels it well there's that line in Chosen to Deserve which has this opening guitar riff that is like a country, classic country rock, like, dun, 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 you know, like, punch your fist in the air, like at the tailgate, like, yeah, all right, this song is coming on. And all of a sudden she says, the, she sings the line, I'm the girl you've chosen to deserve. And it's like, whoa, what a line. Because you could unpick that. That's like, you could yes. just go past, you'd be like, okay. No, it's like, is it a nod to all the incels who feel entitled to mm -hmm. corresponded affection from a girl they've chosen to be their one? It's like, you're perfect. You're for me. Why are you not, you know, uh, why are you not requiting, uh, uh, re reciprocating my affections? Um, Remember yeah. Lana Del Rey as well. And it's very American, yes. you know. Uh, some of the lyrical references. She's a bit it's, Southern Gothic at times. It's yeah. a different kind of American, no? Kind of, it's but like, super American, both of them. Yeah. But they represent, in my head, like two Americas, and I, not not that different. Like not like all oh, one is right wing and the other one is left wing. <laughs> like no, not no, in no, a no, red and blue sense. states. Um, but I don't know. I feel like yeah. Did you like it? Uh oh! I just said. <laughs> Your, your nose um, yes, flared um, in an interesting manner. <laughs> look, um, look, me and Johan loved it, right? So you can you can say no what because you like. I. It's not that I didn't like it. It's that kind of album that I listen to and I feel like I don't know um, enough about music to have an opinion on it. It's like I feel like I lack references. I feel like I lack something to have an opinion on it, like to say I like it or not. And some albums have that on me. It's not. It it just reminds me that I don't know anything about music. I don't know what shoegaze. You don't is. need to. You don't know what shoegaze is. I Do you want a half anything. an hour lecture on what shoegaze <laughs> is? Oh my god! Don't get it. Don't open that melon. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Don't get me started. I'll, I'll tell you what. When we've had a few drinks at the festival, I'll give you then a big I'll, half hour lecture until you run that, away. I will oh. tell you. I love Wednesday, or I don't connect with Wednesday. But only after the one hour lecture. Because now I feel like, who am I to but say like, anything? Well, but that's the thing about music. You don't need to know about it. Like, either you enjoy it but or you don't. But well, a few bands make me feel like I do ah, right, have I to you, feel... I get you, I get you. But who else? To, I don't remember. I feel like other times, um, bands that I do not know, but you do, um, made me feel like I I know nothing. <laughs> and, it, I, and it sounds bad, but it's not, it's not that. It's just... Just that. I don't know anything. Well, interestingly, Thomas Bangalter's album, which we're going to go on to talk about, in a way made me feel a little bit like that. Because but do you know everything. I don't know that much about classical music, though. Okay. I don't listen to ballet, okay. you know. So it's like, is it a good ballet or not? I don't know. 
Well, hang on. Then let's introduce Thomas Bangalter by listening to a, another cut from Wednesday just to... Uh, cleanse the palate. Cleanse the palate. Like, a, like the ginger in a Japanese restaurant. Wonderful stuff. I mean, it's because they've taken all the greatest ideas of indie rock from the past 20 years and they've like condensed them in their into their formula and it works. Now, it is time to talk about one half of a duo that Ben has written is uh, written extensively about one half of Daft Punk Thomas Bangalter has released uh, a solo album penny dropping there I didn't know who he was okay Andre play some Thomas Bangalter in the background because it is music to speak over isn't it it's so uh, nice that's a bit harsh well, no, no, not so, but it's it's good soundtrack music because it did start as a soundtrack. It was originally written. Thomas Bangalter's album Mythology uh, was written originally for a ballet. Yeah, I mean it was it was written for a ballet. That's it, and basically a ballet co- originally composed for Angeline Preljocage's ballet of the same name. Yeah, for the Orchestre National Bordeaux Aquitaine. I have to say, he's ticked so many boxes, Thomas Bangalter. Like, as a guy who started out being a music nerd, and it's like, okay, I'm going to dream, and I'm going to do, I'm going to, it would be cool to make a sci-fi movie soundtrack for an iconic movie. He did so with Tron, for Disney, for a big studio. I'm going to tour the world in this lavish uh, stage odyssey thing, which he did with Daft Punk as a robot. He created, they created the characters of the robots. Uh, all the eccentricities that you could dream of as a music nerd, he's done. I want to one day win, be at the Grammys, which he's been at to on many occasions, but especially with Random Access Memories, he was joined by Pharrell Williams, Nile Rodgers, and Stevie Wonder on stage. Like, this, you know, when you think some nerdy teenage kid from Versailles and outside of Paris, like, how far you can dream. He's not from Versailles, he's from Paris, Paris. Damn. He's not from Versailles? No, no, you're thinking like but Phoenix is, uh, and Air are from Versailles. He's from Paris. I thought they were all from Versailles. No, no, no. Not even uh, Guy Emmanuel Dion nah, Cristo? No, they're, they're from the 8th, I believe. The and eighth they, album oh, and, but didn't they go to the same school as Phoenix and Air? I don't know. There but was I, some kind... Okay, what, what, their, their relationship with Phoenix was that uh, the... Um, uh, guitarist Christian uh, Christian Mazzalai played in um, Darling, Darling, and uh, was it Thomas Thomas Mars played drums in Darling? No, no, no. Or no, Deck? No, no there was only um, Laurent. Oh, it was Laurent not, again. Not, oh, hang not on, Christian. Hang on, hang on. I'm getting, or was I'm getting it Christian confused. and Laurent, the two brothers who played in Darling? I think. Or it was, was just one of them. I think it was. A, it was a trio. Darling was a trio where it was two da- uh, Guy Manuel Guy Man. <laughs> And Thomas and um, Laurent or it, yeah, Christophe. Laurent, Thomas and Guiman. It was yeah. There we go. So that yeah, that was the relationship. Okay, sorry. Anyway, let's so so he's ticked all those boxes, like all the kind of uh, lavish ideas of how far you can go in the music industry, and it's like, what's next? Write a classical album that your grandparents can respect, because I bet. You know, I'm imagining he has like sn- maybe snobby French uh, Parisian family members who are like, oh, this electronic music you play is like fun and all that. But when are you going to get a real job? Well, when dad, are you going to make real music? His dad was a disco producer. Oh, okay. then. then. And his mum was a uh, was a dancer. So then, okay, it kind of makes then. sense. It's like going from, you know, his dad's his dad's world of disco to his mum's world of dancing. He used to apparently go and see. His uh, mum performed ballet. 
Yes. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. nice. And she died a few years ago, like 20 oh. years ago or something like that. So. Oh. Um, the, thing, the thing with this album is, right, and the curse of it in a way, is like, if you're like me, you're going to listen to the album being like, where, how does this sound like Daft Punk? Right, and so you spend like the whole time, the whole ninety minutes listening to it. Like, is this like Daft Punk? And that's almost like the worst way you can listen to it, right? Because yeah. you're just there, like, oh, is this like Daft Punk? And you're not, you're not sort of particularly enjoying the actual project. Yeah, yeah, and it's like the curse because, like, that's you know, you want to be like, no, I just because like, if if it wasn't Thomas Pangelta, would I have listened to it? No, no. But like the fact that it is him meant that I kind of listened to it, um, but in this kind of bad way, and I have gone back to it, you know. Um, then try and listen to it, you know, just as as a thing as it is. But it kind of always says at the back of my mind, it's like, oh, is that like, that, that like Daft Punk? Is that you know? Um, and I mean, there like basically there are sort of like some kind of traces of it, like um, like there's it's very repetitive some bits yeah. of it. Like the bloke who conducted Roman Dumas um, said that there's like in Zeus, there's this thing that repeats three or four minutes, which is very hard for an orchestra. Um, and it seems a little bit like his work on Tron, some of it, and mm. um, a little bit like the, the Dark Moods of the Irreversible soundtrack. Um, but, you know, basically, it could have become out, as he's saying, this is his big joke, it's like, yes, it's influenced by the 70s, the 1870s. Which is a <laughs> very, very French joke, you got to love it. I love him. I mean, it... As I'm just like you, Ben. I don't. I'm not well versed in classical music. I don't know where to start. I go to the obvious things sometimes in Spotify to have a gander, like I don't know Chopin or uh, Debussy, because they've got those sort of piano suites, Eric Satie. But these kind of bombastic orchestral things, like Mozart or Marta Salikru called it uh, um, Ludwig van Bangalter. Lud- Ludwig van <laughs> van Bangalter. Uh, I'm, I'm not a Be- Beethoven or a Wagner expert or anything. That kind of stuff. I can't find the moment. I mean, I guess if I was walking in nature, it would be great to listen to those epic kind of... I had a moment where I tried to get into Philip Glass, which this sounds a bit like Philip Glass, because I thought Philip Glass was pretty cool. That I I can listen to a lot, like contemporary classic, like like John Cage or Philip Glass or or even Ruichi Sakamoto, may rest in peace, his his piano works. That I can listen to loads of, because that's easy on the ear. But these things that have been written for, like, they have a storyline and there's a ballet that's supposed to go with it and stuff. It's like, it's a bit, uh, yeah, harder. I don't know. I find it harder to find the moment to enjoy. But I guess we will get to an age where we'll, we'll listen to it more. Yeah. <laughs> will we get into ballet or... I don't think I could. Like, I, have you ever <laughs> wanted to go to the opera? I get so bored I've in theatres. I've been to a ballet. I've been to a ballet. And... and? Yeah. How long? How long was it? Because sometimes these things go on for five hours. Uh, it was. I'm trying to remember what ballet it was. I, it was like a pretty famous one. Um, you know, like one of the big hits. I think it was the Nutcracker. I think it was. I um, went to a Russian one. I remember, and it was terrible because <laughs> it was kind of and you know Russian ballet. You know, it's like oh, some of the best com- ballet companies in the world are Russian. It was just kind of like rancio like dated the costumes the scenery it was like wow this is from 1970 something in a bad way not even in like a nice way it's like low budget i don't know it wasn't grand and regal and stuff and with opera like i've i had a friend you know he i have a friend who went to the la scala in milan to see some opera and stuff oh and i think it's all more it's exciting to be in you know dressing up and being around 
these noble people in, in another country, maybe that would be exciting for a while. But actually getting into the story and like, first of all, I don't understand Italian or German or whatever some of these operas are written in. I don't think the plots are that. No, Swan Lake I went to see. Excuse me. Yeah. Are you a ballet fan? I have always asked to go to the ballet, but it's so expensive. I have never been able to. But aren't there what? cheap seats for students? Yeah. Or like no, free seats? No, but I think it's more like contemporary, like takes on ballet and stuff. It's like plays that are like contemporary. And I want to see like full on ballet. I want to see like old, like co- like the typical costume you imagine when you think of ballet. Mm. We went in Budapest where it was a lot cheaper. Yes. Right. Maybe I have to go there then. That's the good thing. Budapest is like so, there's so much classical music and spectacles and shows and ballets and stuff. It's cheap. Like it's 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 like an affordable thing, and you can put you know matinee tickets and stuff. By the way, if you're theater students, I don't know if that's still the case, but what we used to do is we would go on opening night when there'd be an international company coming into town to a theater festival or whatever, and because opening night is like a tradition where you want the company wants all seats to be full, you know, to like it's like I don't know if it's a superstitious thing. Uh, usually, if you demonstrate that you're a theater student. And it's like, look, can I get a free can I get a free ticket or access? They will usually let you have seats that haven't been occupied by guests. Like sometimes there'll always be like guests like from the Ayuntamiento or some or the bank that sponsors. And if like five minutes before the theater they haven't showed up to pick up the tickets, uh, they're like, okay, they'll quickly allot you them. And that's how we got like front row, th- row three, and some of these incredible uh, theatre companies. So there's a tip for you. Go on opening night. So did we enjoy mythology? I, did- di- I, di- I didn't finish it. <laughs> it was a little bit too, as I said, I need to find the right moment. But I, th- I would buy it on vinyl. Like, I think it's a record that's worth having to revisit and, like, go into. I think it's, he's pulled it off. Ma? I didn't even, <laughs> I didn't even know. <laughs> we were... Mm, Okay. Listening I, to this this week. <laughs> I, th- I think the challenge is, is it uh, more remarkable for who it's by or for what it is? And if I it think could- it's more remarkable that we're reviewing a ballet album. I'm more impressed by that than the fact that he's a former Daft Punk member. Hmm. Also, he's been everywhere this week. Now he's like bringing that. He's like doing loads and loads of interviews, which can you know. Maybe he'll. Have you have you submitted your petition for? An I interview? asked for an interview. Like yeah, no, but it's it's all it's all like it's all like the 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 New York Times opera critic and thing. Oh, classical music critic. You know, oh, God. and so because so they're all like, oh, what do you think of Bach? And he's like, I love Bach. And it's like <laughs> not someone annoying like me who's like, when are you gonna make a dance record? <laughs> I know, but I, I'm not gonna light candles, Ben. I'll be so happy if you get an interview with Thomas Bangalter he'll probably be a bastard and not answer a single question related to Daft Punk like you'd like but do you know what he's absolutely appears to be living his best life at the moment he looks like I've been looking at some of the Daft Punk reddits and he just looks so really happy just like you know balding and in lovely scarves and like going around to do his classical interviews and hanging out at ballets he's absolutely having uh, the time of his life and, and you know more power to him, quite it, frankly. It's almost like one of those divorced dads who all of a sudden starts to live his his second teenage, uh, adole- a second adolescence, but he's got money in the bank to like, have, you know, he can just take any any flight to wherever, whichever part of the world. He can invite dates to like the most expensive sushi. Well, also he can just now go, he like, doesn't have Guimanuel <laughs> to question his. Guimanuel, come to the ballet. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
also he can just be like, oh no, I don't want to speak to these music critics. I want to speak to the classical music critic because yeah. I read. Oh, do you know what else? He wrote it the the whole the score out by hand. It's like, wow, come on. Oh. it's impressive. He really learned how to do it. And this is a guy who never went to like formal musical academy training or anything. They learned music in the punk DIY punk way, isn't it? Yeah, 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 yeah. And they learned to grapple well, he did, with. He did do piano. And guitar. Oh, okay. Because a lot of the when they were making random access memories, they'd be in the studio with these incredible session musicians from the seventies who played on all these incredible disco records, and they would like hum ideas or like oh, I want this. You know, they wouldn't like direct them like a musician who knows how to read music. That's what well, that's what I understood. But if he played piano, he knew something. Mar, we barely, we didn't leave any time for your section, but I'm going to ask you two questions. Is it true that Timothy Chalamet is dating Kylie Jenner? I believe so. <laughs> And I can somehow prove it. <laughs> Damn it! We need. No. Well, what, what? Uh, I think it's a Chris Jenner strategy. So we're for us to talk about it, but there's actual proof, and that's all we have time for. That's all we have time for. Okay, and uh, we're if very. If they want that proof, they'll have to pay eighty euros to see you <laughs> in a cinema. Exactly. I'm gonna. I'm, I'm thinking. If we charge the higher price, we charge the more we'll sell out tickets. I played for free uh, at the Edition Hotel. 15 people came. <laughs> Still, everyone enjoyed it, so that was worth it. Uh, Tarantino charges almost a hundred. Full of sold house and everything. Uh, God, it's almost like he's more popular. Than <laughs> exactly. Is he more? Really? Do people agree? Really? Makes you think. Thank you for listening. Thank you, Andre Ignat, for producing. This was the weekly review. Stay tuned for Victor Trapero on Heavy Rotation.